0: Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Father, I was glad to wake up this morning. Glad to know where I was going today. Glad to be here, Lord, and glad just to be in your presence. And this morning, Lord, as we consider Psalm 122, we invite your Holy Spirit to pour gladness into our hearts as we listen to you and learn from you. And we pray, Spirit of God, that you would speak to us and that you would delineate your word clearly to us, that we might know you better, and especially, Lord, as we've already prayed, that we might simply be in your presence, that we might be privileged to be here at your feet. Lord, bring your word to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've heard me say it many times before. I will say it again. No matter where you come up or come from, you always go up to Jerusalem. Whatever direction you approach the city from, you go up to Jerusalem. Geographically, that's true. It's also spiritually true. There is something of going to Jerusalem that gives you the sense of going up spiritually. The Jewish people understood that. We're now in the Psalms of Ascent, 15 psalms designed to be sung by the people of Israel as they went up to Jerusalem at least three times a year annually for the feasts and festivals that were held there. And they would go up to the Holy City and as they would leave their homes and make that journey, eventually heading up the mountains and on into Jerusalem, they sang these psalms. So the context of these is very important to understand as the people went up, they sang. I shared Wednesday night. They didn't sing she'll be coming around the mountain as she comes. They didn't sing in 100 bottles of beer or Coke or whatever it is on the wall. They sang these Psalms of Ascent. And Psalm 122, long one of my favorite of the Psalms, is the most vivid concerning Jerusalem, God's chosen capital city. His chosen city, Yeah. 2 Kings 21, verse 4, the Lord said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 6, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. 2 Chronicles 33, verse 4, the Lord says again, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. Psalm 48, verse 2 tells us, Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. Jerusalem has phenomenal significance, especially where the Lord is concerned. And when I discover that there's something of great significance to the Lord, I want it to be significant to me. If it matters to God, it should matter to us. And Jerusalem matters to the Lord. We'll see that even more as we go through this this morning. Psalm 122. It's written by a man for whom Jerusalem greatly mattered himself. That was David. And David loved Jerusalem. He loved Mount Zion. The city of David, there just at the south end of the Temple Mount, where during David's day, the tabernacle was pitched and the Ark of the Covenant had been brought up and was placed in David's tabernacle. And David loved to go up to the house of the Lord, to worship there, to be in God's presence. And David loved Jerusalem. He had a great affection for this city. Psalm 122, from the mouth and the heart and the spirit of David, inspired by the Spirit of God, is more than any other psalm a call to the people of God. That is to Jews and Christians alike to be a people that not only love Jerusalem but pray for Jerusalem. You will find no other city in the Scripture where we are called to pray for it. And Jerusalem is the only one. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now you Bible students know that Jerusalem has rarely known peace. It's almost an ironic name. Jerusalem, city of peace, Shalom. Originally called Salem, the first mention in the Bible back in Genesis 14 or 15, where Melchizedek, that interesting king, comes out of Salem, meaning peace. Jerusalem is supposed to be the city of peace, and yet it's rarely known peace in its long history. I found this interesting. On February the 6th, 2001, Ariel Sharon became prime minister... Of Israel, He would reign as prime minister, if you can use the word reign. He would serve there for five years before having a stroke that debilitated him. As he became the prime minister on that day, which would begin a rather turbulent prime ministership, on that day, President Bush called to congratulate Ariel Sharon. And Ariel Sharon said this on the phone to the president at the time, and I quote, "...maybe..." After so many years and wars in which I have participated, we will have peace in the region. Interesting. Ariel Sharon is, was the warhorse of Israel. This man fought in every single war of modern Israel's history. The War of Independence in 1948. The Sinai Campaign in the 50s. The, the Six Day War in 67. The Yom Kippur War in 73. And on through. He orchestrated. He was the architect of the Lebanon invasion back in 1982. Ariel Sharon was a fighting man. And as he came into office, the people elected him, drew him in, wanted him as prime minister because they needed a defender. And yet the words out of this warrior's mouth, maybe we will have peace in the region. He would that year go up on the Temple Mount to make inspection. The the Muslims there, the Palestinians, would use that as opportunity to inflame the people and it began what's called the Intifada, as all the suicide bombings began, and you may have tracked all those things and been aware of that. Ariel Sharon was the one who emptied out Gaza of the Jewish people living there, handing it over completely to the Palestinians. It has since really become Hamistan, a place ruled by Hamas. And after emptying out Gaza, Ariel Sharon suffered that stroke and has been in a semi-conscious state ever since, even to this day. He is still alive, semi-conscious living in his, at his ranch. Interesting situation. The region, as you know, remains volatile. I've been watching the news this last week. Egypt is in flames. It's in uproar. Yemen, um, some of the surrounding Arab states, in fact, we're seeing more and more on the streets. Jordan, there's a lot of problems going on and unrest, the people upset about the iron-fisted rule of so many of their dictators. We watch because the only two neighboring Arab states with which or with whom uh, Israel has a peace treaty are Egypt and Jordan. And right now, both Egypt and Jordan are in turmoil. Right now, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt is seeking power and control. If they get it, understand they are as radical to the Sunni side of being Muslims as the Shia in Iran are radical. Can you imagine Israel being sandwiched between radical Iran, Shia Muslims, and radical Muslim Brotherhood, Sunni Muslims? It's a very volatile situation. And what's going on right now has been called uh, just the other day in the news, an earthquake in the Middle East. 3,000 years ago, David said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And it is as applicable today as it was then. We still... In our modern, internet, technologically savvy world, we are still called upon to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in a region that does not know peace. But the application of this passage is interesting. It really goes beyond simply Israel itself and Jerusalem. In fact, there's a marvelous application I think you'll find throughout for us and for the church today. Now please understand, I had a marvelous conversation with Marsh Kimball, and, and she was saying, and, and I took note of this, that for every passage of Scripture, there's one interpretation. There's only ever one interpretation of Scripture, one truth of Scripture, but there are many applications. There are many ways that we can apply Scripture to our lives and, and to the world around us and helping us understand what's going on. There's only one interpretation. The interpretation, I will tell you right up front, for Psalm 122, is it is a call to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It is a call to the Jewish people going up to Jerusalem to consider Jerusalem in their hearts. But the application spills over and I think has immediate practicality for us in our lives. We're going to look at this as we walk through it. Let's do this verse by verse. Psalm 122, verse 1. I was glad... When they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. If you're taking notes, some things to jot down. First of all, you might note the gladness of going. Just the gladness of going. The interpretation is clear. The Psalm of Ascent about going up to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, be it David's tabernacle or later the temple, both housing the Ark of the Covenant. Or even later than that, the second temple that was built after the exiles returned. I was glad to go. And as the Israelites went up, they were called upon to find gladness in the going. In those three times a year, three times annually as they went up, it was not to be a tradition, but a celebration. They were to go up with anticipation of what the Lord might do at that visit, at that festival, in that season. And I'll never forget the first time I realized I was actually going to Israel. It had, for several years prior to it, been a dream of mine. The more I studied the Word, the more hungry I was to see these places and to be here. And the more I felt like, wow, I'm, I'm like a tour guide who's never been. You know, I'm teaching the Word, but I've never been there. How can I tell people about what, what happened here or there or somewhere else? I haven't even seen it with my own eyes. And the elders had determined and we prayed about it. And I asked them if they would send me on a pastor's called the Pastor's Fam Tour, and I went several years ago, and it was just awesome. But from the moment I knew I was going, I was glad. I was just filled with this excitement, this anticipation, knowing I was going to go to the Galilee of Jesus' ministry, where He walked. Knowing that I was going to have opportunity to to actually see the desert caves of David where He hid from Saul, where He wrote so many of the Psalms. Or, Or to go up to Jerusalem itself, Jerusalem, that I'd heard about all my life. I'd read about, you know, as, as a biblical city, this, this place off in the misty distance of history, but to go there and to see it. And my gladness to go has only increased over the years. Last week, Marge asked me the question. She said, what are your goals for this fellowship? And I'll tell you honestly, and I, I have a few, but but what popped to my mind, the first thing that came to mind was simply, I want everybody here to go to Israel at least once in their life. Now that's not the most important thing, because the most important thing is that everybody here knows Jesus Christ. And that's the greater goal of any church fellowship, should be, needs to be. But that thought, I couldn't keep it out of my mind, I would love every one of you to go, to be there, to experience it, to know the gladness of going up to Jerusalem itself. And I'll tell you what, once you've gone, there is an infectious gladness in you every time it's talked about. You hear the word Jerusalem read in scripture, and if you've been there, you go, I remember, I want to go back. I haven't met a single person on the tours that we've taken as a fellowship, haven't met one who hasn't felt that way. And for those of you who say you have no interest in going... Or you don't feel called to go. And and if you're feeling right now like you just got trapped into one of those weekend seminars, you know, with a timeshare thing, I apologize for that. I just can't help it. If you don't feel like you have any desire to go whatsoever, I'll tell you what, I pray that the Lord would infuse in you a desire to go. That He would plant a seed. Because it is not what you think. And you're missing one of the greatest experiences of your entire life as a follower of Jesus. Now the application is that. Gladness in going up to Jerusalem. Gladness in going to God's holy city. Gladness in being there physically, actually. But there's a practical application for us here that I I think applies very well. See, the house of the Lord is not limited to Jerusalem. Not anymore. The house of the Lord is not limited to geographical location. It's not limited to the temple or the more ancient tabernacle. In fact, Stephen said in Acts 7.48, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. You know, As we consider building this building, and continue to consider as the county considers it, we're not concerned about building a house for the Lord where we know He'll be contained so that we can go there, get some Jesus on Sunday, and leave and leave Him there. It's not the way it works. He's not contained in a house built by human hands. No, the dwelling place of the Lord is anywhere God's people worship. He inhabits the worship of His people. And anywhere we gather, anywhere we worship, He loves to dwell there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, or 24, the Lord said, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. So where He's worshipped, where He's remembered... He wants to be there. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.16, we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And John the Apostle saw that. Revelation chapters 1, 2 and 3, he sees Jesus walking among the lampstands. Seven lampstands, representative of seven churches, representative of the church, across the last 2,000 years. And I love that picture of Jesus walking among the lampstands, in and out of the churches among His people as they are gathered to fellowship and worship and break bread and pray and, and hear the teaching of His Word. The Lord loves to be where people gather in His name. Matthew 18.20 Jesus said where two or three have gathered in my name I am there in their midst. So the question, the practical question for you, for me today is are you glad when you go to church? Yes. Are you? <laughs> well, I'm going to say yes right now because I'm here and I have to. <laughs> Pastor Rick, I mean if I say no, I'm out of here. No, listen, do you look forward to fellowship on Sunday? When the alarm goes off Sunday morning, do you have anticipation and, and excitement in your heart? You think, oh boy, it's Sunday again. See, I wasn't always that way. There was a time where as a child I was more interested in staying home to watch Wonder Rama than going to church. An old show back then when I was a kid. Are you glad to go? You know, it seems almost countercultural today. Go to church? Why would I want to waste my Sunday going to church? And yet, Interesting, several studies have been done that that show that there's a positive reality here that we don't often hear about. Did you know that based purely on the numbers, the single most popular activity in America today on Sundays is still going to church? More people go to church on a Sunday morning in America than attend weekend football games or, or go golfing or outdoor activities. All other things combined... Do not measure up to the number of people who still gather to worship God in America on Sundays. Now, you're not going to hear that in the news. But that's the truth. And that means this morning across America, in a wonderful way, people are worshiping God as the single most important activity happening today. Praise the Lord, people still worship Him. I mean, hallelujah, people are still in churches. I'm glad. I'm glad to go. And I'm glad people are still glad to go. So the next time you find yourself hesitating, you know, to give invitation to a Sunday morning service. I just don't know if he's going to want to get up at 8 o'clock. I don't know if she'll be comfortable coming with me. To, I don't know if I should invite them to church. Understand, most people are just waiting for an invitation. All you got to do is ask. What's the worst thing they can do? Say no? Okay. But ask, invite, bring. I'm not worried about numbers. You know this. I hope you know my heart on these things. I'm not concerned about building an empire here. But I do want people to hear Jesus proclaimed. And i promise promised you before, if you invite them to come, I will talk about Jesus every Sunday morning. We will present the gospel. Okay? We'll do it on Wednesday night too. But let's partner on this thing. Are you glad to go? genuine gladness, gang, is infectious. If you find yourself getting even slightly excited about the idea of going to Israel when I get excited about it, that's how I feel about being here. That's how the Lord calls us to feel about being together when He's present. Glad to go. A study was done a few years back regarding families and church attendance. And what was discovered was in the family where mom goes regularly and dad goes occasionally, the children, the offspring of people in that situation, 3% will end up going to church regularly when they grow up as adults. 3% of children where mom goes regularly and dad only goes occasionally, 3% will go to church when they grow up as a regular choice. If mom goes regularly and dad never goes, only 2% will become regular attenders. And I hope, Dad, this is the Sunday you've chosen to be here. Check this out. If Dad goes regularly and Mom only occasionally, the number jumps to 38%. If Dad goes regularly and Mom never goes, and I haven't figured this one out, the number jumps up to 44%. Now, that doesn't mean you should stay home, Mom. (laughs) Please understand well, if that's the way it works, I'll stay home and watch football and you go to church, honey. <laughs> what does this mean? Simply that the weight of responsibility, has, just as the Bible has told us, it sits on the father in the home. It sits on the man. Guys, I'm saying this to you. It is your responsibility to get your family to church, to be glad to go because you will have the greater influence on your children when they grow up, even more so than your wife. And moms, be faithful, be consistent. Even if dad won't go, you bring the kids and you be in church. But understand, there is a reality to the roles that God has called us to as male and female and He has called men to leadership. (laughs) I've shared before because I, I think if He didn't, none of us would do it. But He's called us to step out and lead. And it has a dramatic impact on our kids. The question is, is Dad glad to go? If Dad is glad to go, chances are far better that the children will be glad to go when they grow up. Well, let's go on. So I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Verse 2, Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem that is built as a city that is compact together. Jerusalem is compact, especially the old city. If you've ever walked down the streets of the old city, it's pretty tight. You know, with the the shops all along either side of these cobblestone walkways. And lots of people crowded in, and and of course the vendors trying to get you to buy their wares. And the more you walk, the more you realize that that guy's wares are exactly the same as that guy's wares down there. (laughs) But it's compact. It's it's close-knit. It's close together. But the word here, and I found this incredible... The word "compact" in your Bibles is is not probably the best translation. Sometimes I, I told Cheryl the other day. Sometimes I don't understand why the translators chose the word they chose. It, it works. I mean, the word does mean compact, but there's a deeper and far more impacting meaning to the Hebrew word here. It doesn't imply tight or crowded when it says compact, like those you know, the compact car parking spaces. I have the worst time getting my suburban to fit into. I don't know about you guys. It's very frustrating. The Hebrew word here is Chabar. And Chabar literally means joined together or united. United. Read that way, Jerusalem that is built as a city that is united. United. It is to be a united city. Jerusalem, the, the, the city united together. And it was under David's rule and authority. When he was leading, when he was king, it was a united city over a united Israel. But you know it didn't take long for things to begin to crumble. Oh, united under Solomon, but then his son Rehoboam comes into power and things begin to crumble. And after centuries and multiple conquerings, and problems that divided and and carved up the city into religious factions and all kinds of problems, in 1948, Israel was reborn a nation. But after that War of Independence, and by the way, there's a fantastic book called O Jerusalem that details specifically the battle for Jerusalem in the War of Independence. (laughs) And it's funny because even though you may know the history, you read it hoping... I read hoping the Jewish people were going to take the whole city. And when they didn't, at the end of the book, I was really bummed. Even though I knew they weren't going to, you know, because history tells us. It's like watching a movie you've seen before and you keep hoping for a different outcome. It's like opening the refrigerator door and hoping that there's going to be a snack in there that wasn't there two minutes ago when you just looked. Anyway. You all with me this morning? I uh, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> This city remained divided after 1948. In 1967, the Six-Day War occurred. And for the first time, literally since A.D. 70, Jerusalem was united again. United under the authority and the control of the Jewish people. Now it has remained a hotbed of activity, but it is a united city for the first time in over 1,800 years, and the world hates it. The world hates it. It doesn't make any sense outside of spiritual terms, by the way. It doesn't make any sense that people would ever be anti-Semitic or would be so anti what's going on in Israel. There's only one reason for all of that, and I believe it's a satanic one. Be that as it may, why do you think protesters and politicians call for pre-1967 borders? They're calling for borders that go back to a divided Jerusalem. That go back to a carved up Israel. And Israel that before 1967 was nine miles wide at its widest point. The country. Indefensible. And so Jerusalem united today, people wanted to go back to that place of being divided. On Jerusalem Day, Yom Yerushalayim, May 12, 2010... Benjamin Netanyahu declared the following. He said, we will never again make Jerusalem a divided, disunited, and isolated city. What's he saying? It's going to remain compact. Based on the psalmist's words, this city must remain united. In response, Ahmed Tibi said, there is no greater lie than the unity of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is a city under foreign occupation and peace will not be established until the occupation ends and East Jerusalem is the capital of Palestine. Ahmed TV. You know what's interesting about this guy? He has full Israeli citizenship with all the rights and privileges thereof. He even sits on the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. He's an Arab MK, and MK is similar to our congressman, but he's calling for the division of Jerusalem. He's an Israeli citizen, calling for the division of this city. What does the Lord say about the idea of dividing up his land? Joel chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat." and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land. The Lord does not want to see a divided Jerusalem, a divided Israel, a carved up land. And yet the world wants to see it divided. The Bible tells us Jerusalem is built as a city compact together, unified when David wrote that, he knew nothing of the contentious environment that would surround this city in the future. He had no idea of the of the division that would be there. He was simply saying the house of the Lord is a place where things are unified and clarified, not divided and confused, like the world is today. Application. Satan's M.O. is always divide and conquer. This is how he works, to divide He he will seek to divide a husband and a wife. He will seek to divide children and parents. He will seek to divide in relationships. This is what he does. If he can divide, he can confuse. And if he can confuse, he can conquer. And he even seeks to divide the mind or the heart of the individual. But here's the good news, gang. In the house of the Lord, there is, number two, not only gladness in the going, there is a unity that's flowing. There is a unity that's flowing in the house of the Lord. There's something about gathering together that encourages, calls for, draws together unity. Well, Rick, I've been in a church that was divided. I know. When Satan gets a foothold, that's what happens. As the people of God, we are called to be compact. We are called to be united as a fellowship and not allow the enemy to divide even if we have contentiously different opinions about things to come back to the Lord and say we are unified under one Lord and and God, Jesus Christ. That unity is critical and a unity is flowing in the house of the Lord. And that means personally as well, gang. I come here... Yeah, I know I'm the pastor, but, but that aside, I come here just as you do Because there is a unity that's flowing when I gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ. I get frazzled. I get spread thin. My heart gets stretched. And what I need is to be unified again. Spirit and soul and body. I, I need to be unified. I need to get compact with the Lord and with His people. I need fellowship. I need to be in the Word. I need His Holy Spirit working in me to hold me together Because there are times where I feel like and I know you felt this way like we're just falling apart. David called Jerusalem compact. Indicating a place where there's this sense of unity. A place where David could return to he could get refocused and reunified and back into the flow of the things of God. There is a unity that's flowing in the house of the Lord. Psalm 73, verse 2, David said, My feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. He describes this a bit more. And down in verse 11 of Psalm 73, he says, They say, how does God know? And, there is, and is there knowledge with the Most High? And then he says in verse 16, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until until I came into the sanctuary of God. Frazzled out there, but in here there's a unity that's flowing. A unity between brothers and sisters, yes, but a unity in my body, in my soul, in my spirit. God reorganizes me, straightens me out, clarifies things for me. The unity flows even in my own person. So when life gets scattered... Man, park in the compact spot. Get in the place that is compact in the flow of the Spirit where there's unity and community and clarity and focus and it happens in the presence of the Lord. Amen? Next verse, verse 4. Jerusalem is built as a city compact together to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Interpretation Again, this feast of the twelve tribes going up by ordinance, by command. But you need to note this word ordinance here. And this is why I love to dig in and find some things out here. The word usually translated ordinance in the Bible is mishpat. We talked about this a couple weeks back. Mishpat means ordinance, but that's not the word that's used here. The word used here is the word adut. Adut. Now I know, I see light bulbs going off all over the place. Oh yeah! The Hebrew word dude we did talk about, means testimony. Translated accurately, the word there should be, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of Israel, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. The tribes of Israel go up to Jerusalem to the testimony to give thanks to the name of the Lord Bible students stretch your minds a bit here what is the testimony of Israel anybody have a guess what is the testimony of Israel I'm going to jump out there it's too early in the morning for quiz time the testimony of Israel alright go back to the first time Adah, the word testimony is mentioned it's Exodus chapter 33 go ahead and turn your Bibles back there Exodus 33. Ah, Well, I sip the nastiest cup of tea I think I have ever had. (laughs) Exodus 16. Uh, Sorry, Exodus 16, verse 33. (laughs) How dare he give us the wrong verse? Exodus 16:33 Watch this Moses said to Aaron take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations Now before we read the next verse listen we've talked about the principle of first mention And remember this, it's important. Anytime you're trying to figure out the significance of a word anywhere in Scripture, go back to the very first time that word is used. And 99 times out of 100, you will discover the significance of that word. What is meant by it. God is very specific that way. This is the first time this word testimony is used in Scripture at all. Verse 34. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The testimony is the Ark of the Covenant. Did someone say the Ark? Yeah. Good job! Woohoo! <laughs> you should have shouted it out. Be confident. Throw it out there. If you're wrong, we'll all laugh at you and, me, and move on. <laughs> the Ark of the Covenant is the testimony. When you hear that phrase, and Jewish people even today, when they refer to the testimony, they know that's the Ark of the Covenant. The testimony. Now, look back at Psalm 122. Jerusalem, it's, a, it's built as a city compact together to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, and, and ordinance the testimony of Israel to give thanks to the name of the Lord. What is this talking about? The testimony. The Ark of the Covenant. The tablets of the law put in the ark, the testimony, that synonym of the Ark of the Covenant itself. Listen, the whole reason the people came up to Jerusalem, to David's tabernacle, and after that, ultimately, to the temple, they came up because that's where the ark was. And above the ark, God said, I will meet you there. What was on top of the Ark of the Covenant? The mercy seat I will meet you above the mercy seat This is where the presence of the Lord was For the people of Israel Now wonderfully the presence of the Lord today His Holy Spirit resides in the heart Of a believer So He is wherever you are But for the Jewish people You had to go up and they would go up to the testimony to the mercy seat that's why they give thanks to the name of the Lord because they would go up and there would receive mercy forgiveness, atonement in the sacrifices that were done there the one place, the only place God allowed an ordained sacrifice to happen in Israel was in Jerusalem and the people went up to the mercy seat number three in your notes here's the application We have fellowship in the knowing. Gladness in the going, right? Uh, Unity that's flowing. And number three, fellowship in the knowing. Knowing what? In knowing the testimony of His mercy. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying we fellowship around the mercy seat. Our fellowship is because of the mercy seat. Just as the testimony in Jerusalem was the one thing that unified all Israel when they came together. And they were very diverse, these 12 tribes. Diverse people. But all came together in unity, all came together in fellowship because of the testimony. Because that was the place where they found atonement. And so our testimony, gang, and knowing our testimony, it is the one thing that unifies Christians above all other things. Hey, we may disagree on various theological positions. From church to church to church. We certainly differ on church tradition. But we come together as one people under the testimony of our mercy seat, the cross of Jesus Christ. We have fellowship because of the mercy seat. Because of the cross and there we give thanks to His name. That's why at the bridge we take communion every week. We come to the table. We come to the place of mercy. We come to remember what Jesus did on the cross for us, and His crucifixion is the unification point of all believers in Jesus Christ. He draws us together. His sacrifice. All our tribes go up. And all our tribes will go up because of the testimony of the Lord because of His mercy, because of Calvary. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I marvel at the diversity right here in this barn. It amazes me, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, looking out between services, at both services, and how unique and diverse this fellowship has become, and and not by design. You know, we didn't set out to be a multicultural church. I have friends in California who planted a multicultural church and they went door to door knocking to find out hey look we'd like to have a diversity of of races we'd like to have a diversity of people we'd like to have a diversity of of ages and so they went knocking on people's doors saying hey you know what you're different than me would you come to church with me because we're trying to have a mosaic church you know (laughs) I thought that was so weird I did I mean how would you feel you know I happen to have a Scottish background if they came to me and said we really need a Scot so Crawford would you come be a part of our mosaic, here's what God does. God draws together every tribe, every tongue, every nation under the mercy seat of the cross. And it doesn't matter how unique we are, whether we have differences in race, whether we have differences in background, whether we have differences in life approach, we come together under the cross of Jesus Christ and it's absolutely marvelous. And we haven't yet seen this Revelation 5.9 said, They sang a new song speaking of the church. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And that, gang, is fellowship in Jesus. The fellowship in knowing the mercy of Christ. It's what draws us all together. The cross. Verse 5, And for there thrones were set for judgment. The thrones of the house... Of David thrones were actually set up interpretation thrones were set up at the gates of the city and in fact you may recall an earlier teaching in the Psalms where David when he came into power the the justices and the justice system in Israel was a mess and he cleaned it up and he cleaned out the unjust judges and he began to make God's word the standard for judgment once again. And so there in Jerusalem, as the people came up to worship, they could also come before the judges. They would sit in the judgment seats at the gates of the city. And you could go right up, and if you had an issue or a problem or a difficulty in your life, you could bring it to the judges who sat there and who gave judgment. And it was all about biblical accountability in Israel. Now listen, judgment, in that frame of mind, with that understanding, judgment is a good thing. But what's the primary complaint of non-Christians against Christians? What's number one? Too judgmental. Who's too judgmental? You Christians, you're always judging us. You're always judging other people. You're always looking at me with those judgmental eyes. To which I'm always like, really? I really wasn't even thinking about you. (laughs) I've got a frog in my throat. I was thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about judging you. Too judgmental. Dang, you know where that comes from? Let me speak personally. It comes from the fact that I don't want you or anyone else messing with my lifestyle. I don't want you telling me how to live my life. I want to live my way, thank you very much, and I don't need your input. I don't need your involvement in it, and especially up here in Northwest Washington where independence is such a part of the heart of people here. I mean, I'm convinced that's why a lot of people move up here. They just want to get away. You know, from Seattle and the cities and and having to rely on... I want to go do it myself. That independent spirit does not want and rejects the idea of judgment. But gang, without judgment, we go on unchanged. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying we need judgment in the church. We don't need to be... We don't need less judging. We need more. We need to be less judgmental But we need more sound, biblical judgment, number four. See, there's gladness in the going, and there's unity that's flowing, and there's fellowship in the knowing, number four. Yes, it's going to rhyme. Prepare yourselves. (laughs) There is judgment in the growing. And this is incredibly significant for us. In fact, this application is my second favorite one of, of this whole morning there is judgment in the growing if you want to grow in Jesus you're going to have to face judgment let me explain a little more First John 1 John 1.7 favorite verse if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin walking in the light means saying I'm an open book and if there's a problem in me and you see it bring it I need to know, because I want to grow. I want to be more like Jesus. And if I'm functioning some way in my life that is less like Jesus, Spencer, please tell me. Talk to me about it. In the house of the Lord, judgment is supposed to be part of the deal. We have this Americanized view of church that pushes judgment and accountability away when we need more of it. It's the good part. Not a critical hostility, but a biblical accountability. Judgment to help form us and reform us after the image of Christ. Again, I ask, do you want to grow as you go? Man, woman, if you want to remain exactly as you are, then perhaps church life really isn't for you. Or find a church that is anti-accountability. There are a few out there, tragically. But Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4.15, It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. He was imploring the people back then, dang, we need to have sound biblical judgment in the way we live our lives. If we love each other, we're going to share with each other. We're going to walk together. And we're going to do it in the light. We're going to be open. And Peter said, if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? What is he saying? Biblical accountability. Judgment one to another is right for those who are being made righteous. Again, nobody likes to be judged. I don't, but I want to be right with God. And it doesn't always feel good to have someone highlight some issue in my life. But I want to be right with God. I want to walk righteously. And again, if you see something in me that needs changing, you're supposed to bring it to me. 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul says, hey, we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Last week we talked about this verse. That's not about salvation. It's about reward. That we are going to be judged based on what we've done for Christ, for the kingdom in the Lord having been saved by grace. But gang, if, if all of this is true, if this whole idea of, of judgment to help me grow, if that's a legitimate concept biblically, how do we go about it without becoming judgmental? How do we keep the flesh out, I guess is the real question. And how do we rightly judge one another in the Spirit? You need to go back to the previous point. There's fellowship in knowing the mercy seat we need to come with this context gang our fellowship is not based in our backgrounds our fellowship is not based in our positions our fellowship is based in the grace of God and so based in that grace we bring sound judgment to each other by grace with mercy as Paul said in Philippians 2 4 do not merely look out for your own personal interests but also for the interests of of others if I am truly interested in Joe as my brother or Brian as my brother or Eric as my brother if I'm truly interested in their faith and their growth and I see them heading off in a bad direction which one is more biblical for me to just watch him go well no, I don't want to interfere in their life or me to grab and say hey bro I love you I think there's a direction that you may get into trouble here There's a way to bring judgment gain with love and grace and mercy. And I'll tell you what it's based in. It's based in truly being concerned for the other people. For the other person. Accountability works when it is grounded in grace and genuine concern. If you are not genuinely concerned for another brother or sister, keep your mouth shut. You know, if you're just looking to pick on someone, if you're just picking out what they're doing so you can get your focus off of what's wrong with you, (laughs) go bring it but if you really care if this is a brother or sister that matter to you by the way we should all matter to each other but if it's someone you love and you're seeing them you say boy this is this is going to hurt them then bring the judgment there is judgment in growing in the Lord and especially if the Lord taps you to speak listen to it and share and a way to do it is just to say look I could be wrong about this test this Uh, Pray about this. Ask the Lord if if I'm right. I I may be wrong. I may be way off base. But here's what I'm seeing, brother. By the way, I mentioned three brothers. I didn't mention any sisters because I think the best way to bring biblical accountability is man to man and woman to woman. Except in a marriage where husband and wife can bring accountability to each other. There is judgment in the growing. Verse 6. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper. Who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. And number five, a peace in the bowing. A peace in the bowing. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. David doesn't decry the problems or the politics or the pitfalls. Or the people in Jerusalem. He doesn't play the blame game, not at all. That's what the nations and the media and the uninformed protesters do in the world today. Blaming the Jewish people. Blaming Jerusalem. Blaming Israel. Found a fascinating article just this morning. I was looking at the news before coming here. And this article that was written that that says, based on what we're seeing happen in the Middle East today, we're finally realizing that perhaps the Israeli-Palestinian problem is not the problem in the Middle East. Maybe it's not what the real issue is. I read that and went, whoa, wow. Maybe Israel isn't the problem. Maybe there's other issues going on as well. Instead of pointing the finger, David simply prayed for peace. He has prayed peace for Jerusalem. Why should we? I mean, come on. Why, why, why should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? This seems so unattached to me. Now, see, I would have said that a decade ago. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Whatever, next verse, you know. Just move on. How does that apply here? Which is a very selfish approach, but yet... Why should we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? David gives two reasons in the next two verses. Two reasons to pray for the peace. Verse 8, For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. For the sake of my brothers and my friends... First time we went to Israel, we gathered in a small room on the last night there in a place called Yad Hashmona. It's a kibbutz that's en route to Tel Aviv and, and the airport, and we were we were just bedraggled people. We had been through the storms and everything of that of that journey of that day in Jerusalem. We were shivering and cold, and we came to Yad Hashmona. and the Jewish people there were, were so gracious, and they gave us rooms to change and places to shower and clean up and dry off and, and get warm. So for the first time that day, that evening, we were warm and we were huddled together in a small room and I could see on the faces of everyone gathered there just the weariness of the day and knowing we were going to be traveling for the next, I don't know, 97 hours, something like that. (laughs) And so we gathered there, but what was wonderful about that night, at least for me, as we sat in this room there preparing dinner for us and Samuel Smaja, uh, who's the founder of Sar El Tours there in Israel, he came and spoke with us. And he read this verse. He opened up Psalm 122 and read, Pray for the, And it was great to hear a guy with a Hebrew accent read this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls. And prosperity within your palaces. And he read, For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be within you. And he said, I want to give you a Jewish perspective on this. He said he believes that verse 8 is both for Jews and for Gentiles that if a Jewish person is reading it, that verse 8 is, For the sake of my brothers, I will pray for peace. Well, who could pray that but a Jewish person? My brothers in Jerusalem. My Jewish family. My Jewish connection. As a Jew, I pray for... Not me, but as a Jew, you would pray for the peace of Jerusalem for the sake of your brothers there. But if you read on, it says, And for the sake of my friends. For the sake of my friends, I will now say, peace be within you. And that's the prayer of a Gentile. The Jewish people are not my brothers, not by physicality, but they're my friends. I consider myself a friend of Israel. I consider our fellowship a friend to Israel. I believe we're called to be friends of God's people. And so both for Jew and for Gentile, and it was so cool hearing this come from Samuel as he shared with us, he said, you all, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for, for showing support. You know, we thought we were just there on a tour to benefit ourselves, and he's saying you have benefited us by coming and supporting our nation. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem because they're your friends. Or because they're your brothers if you happen to be Jewish, which I, I think most of you probably are not. Rick, are you just one of those Hebrew wannabes? You know, those Jewish kind of wish you were, but no, I don't want to be Jewish. I'm thankful every day that I'm not. You know, that I wasn't chosen to be one of the chosen people. It's a tough place to be. But as Paul writes in Romans 9, 10, and 11, we at least owe the Jewish people a debt of gratitude for the role they've played in our faith. What role is this? Well, the fact that we're reading Psalm 122 this morning is an attribute thanks to the people of Israel who kept the word all those years. The fact that we have a Savior who came through the people of Israel is marvelous. This word tells me to pray for their peace. And again, the greatest Jew of all times happens to be my Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I will pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I will pray for my friends in Israel. But there's another reason to pray this prayer as well. Watch this, verse 9. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Why should anybody pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Well, for the sake of brothers and friends, but also for the sake of the house of the Lord. What does that mean? The psalm begins, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. The psalm concludes calling for prayer, for peace, for that same house, for the sake of that same house, the house of the Lord. I think of the prophet Isaiah who says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. What is Isaiah talking about? The coming millennial kingdom. The kingdom where Jerusalem will be the capital, not just of Israel, but of the world. And for the sake of Zion, I'm not going to keep quiet. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to pray for the peace there until it happens, he says. Psalm 69, verse 9 says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. Are you passionate about the house of the Lord? Do you have that kind of zeal in you and in your heart? Jesus did, and he tore into the money changers because of it. You remember? And by the way, it wasn't just one time in his ministry, it was at least twice that Jesus cleared the temple. John chapter 2, at the beginning of his ministry. And then Matthew, Mark and Luke show him doing it at the end of his ministry. That's not a contradiction, it's a statement of historical fact that Jesus cleared the temple two times. Why would he do that? John 2:13 or 15. He made a scourge of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. I mean, can you imagine? Jesus. Oh, gentle Jesus. Who carries a little lamb, you know, and he hugs me when I need comfort with a scourge. Get out of my father's house! Whipping that thing, turning over tables. Money flying everywhere. Sheep, ah, you know, get out of here. And he's angry. And he took on hundreds of Jewish businessmen. I mean, that's tough. And he drove them all out. <laughs> figured that would get, pick that up in a minute. Why did he do it? Zeal for your house consumes me. He said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house into a place of business. At the end of his ministry, when he did it again, he'd say, you're making my Father's house into a place of, a den of thieves. This is supposed to be a house of prayer. And it ignited passion in our Savior. How is praying for the peace of Jerusalem passion for the house of the Lord? Because it's passion for the purposes of God. It's being passionate about what God is passionate about. And gang, it is the will of God that peace come to His holy city. So when you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you are praying in the will of the Father. You're saying, God, I want what You want. You want peace for Your city? I'm praying peace for Your city. You want to save the Jewish people through faith in Jesus Christ? I'm praying for their salvation. And I'm praying, as Jesus prayed, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The most practical way you can pray for the peace of Jerusalem is to join Jesus in that prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven because when His kingdom comes, peace will finally settle in Jerusalem. The house of the Lord on earth. Jerusalem. The temple. The very picture of going up. Now listen, last thing the very picture of going up to jerusalem is a picture for us to be understood because jerusalem itself the physical geographical location is even now a shadow of the greater to come a shadow of the real thing what do you mean hebrews 9:11 when christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is to say not of this creation And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jerusalem. God's city on earth. God's capital in the millennial kingdom. Jerusalem is a picture of new Jerusalem, which will come down as a bride out of heaven. The place Jesus enters... Jesus knew at his first coming, it would cost him every precious drop of his blood. Why did he do it? He was glad to go up to the house of the Lord that you and that I might be glad to go up. See, he's going to call. He's going to say, come up here and we're going to go. And the Bible is clear about it. We will go, we will fly, we'll meet Him in the clouds. And so we will ever be with the Lord. We're going to go up. Are you glad to go? Do you want to go? I want to go up to the house of the Lord. I want to be ready when He calls. And until that day comes, one of the primary prayers that will be in my heart is the peace of Jerusalem. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I was glad when they said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Right now, it's a shadow statement. Right now, our fellowship, our worship here on Sunday morning is a shadow of the real thing to come. It's a good place to practice being glad. Because a day is coming, and it's not far off, when we will be more glad than we have ever experienced. And I, for one, want to be good to go. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, praise You. We are glad to be here, Lord. We love our time together. We especially love Your Word. And we love to be in worship as we're about to do. To partake of of fellowship in Your Spirit. And to sing songs of praise and glory to You. And to call upon Your name. So we prepare ourselves this morning to go up in worship and praise. Knowing that one day, and we pray quickly, Lord, we will go up when You call us. Father, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. There is unrest and, Father, pain. There is heartache. There is trouble in Egypt. Lord, in, in Yemen, in Jordan, in surrounding nations, it, it's, it's a hotbed of anger and frustration. Father, we know people are impoverished. We pray, Father, for the Arab world, for people who are struggling and and hurting and kept down and oppressed even by false religion, Lord. We pray that truth would come to that whole region. And we realize, Lord, that the coming of your kingdom will breathe truth across the world. Father, protect your people, Israel. We pray there will be peace in Jerusalem, both now and especially in the reality of Jesus' coming, the Prince of Peace. And Father, I pray this last thing, that there would would be peace reigning in our hearts and our lives today. As we understand the clear interpretation of this psalm, we pray You would apply it to us and teach us to walk these things out as brothers and sisters in Christ with love, mercy, compassion, and grace one for another. Father, come and inhabit the worship of Your people now, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.